Well, we're going to be beginning together a new sort of series of studies or talks on a Sunday morning uh, in John chapter 10. Uh, we're going to be thinking about life in all of its fullness. So if you've got a Bible with you, or if you've got one on your phone uh, or tablet, we're going to turn to John chapter 10. If you want to, we have got some uh, Bibles available at the back. Feel free to grab one if, if you want to. Uh, but John chapter 10, these amazing words of Jesus for us today. I tell you the truth. The one man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate but who climbs in by some other way is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and the sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he's brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I'm the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. They will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd who owns the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and cares nothing for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep that are not of this sheep pen. I must bring them too. They too will listen to my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. The reason my father loves me is that I lay down my life, only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I received from my father. At these words, the Jews were again divided. Many of them said, he's demon-possessed and raving mad. Why listen to him? But others said, these are not the sayings of a man possessed by a demon. Can a demon open the eyes of the blind? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's do that again. That was, that was hopeless. Sometimes after the reading, we like to say, this is the word of the Lord. And the response is, thanks be to God. Should we try that again with a little bit more? <laughs> again with feeling, should we do that? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. God, thank you for your word. Thank you that it was maybe not written to us, but it was written for us. We thank you that in your words, we find a hope and a life and a grace and a story that we simply cannot and will not find anywhere else. So as we open your word today, we pray. 
pray that by your Spirit, the Spirit who inspired these very words, that you would be among us to inspire us and to speak to us today. Might we hear the voice that is life in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I don't know how many of us are big readers, but there was a book uh, that was out a while ago called A Short History of Nearly Everything. Anybody read this one? No, it's called A Short History. It's written by a guy called Bill Bryson, who's normally known for writing these sort of quirky travel books, and he thought he'd write a travel guide to the universe, to nearly everything. It's called A Short Guide. It's about 672 pages long. Uh, it'll take you about nine hours and 15 minutes to read it. I've looked that up. I, do, I wasn't there this week sort of reading it for you. I mean, I love you guys, but I've got kids. Uh, but yeah, apparently that's how long it'll take you to read it. And his question was, what is this thing we call life? This universe that we call home, who made it? Where's it from? Where's it going? What's the point uh, of it? And he examines uh, in 12 chapters all these different disciplines that look at a short history of nearly everything. Uh, in that book, he writes these words. He talks about life's quest of delivering a tiny charge of genetic material to the right partner at the right moment in order to perpetuate the only possible sequence of hereditary combinations that could result eventually, astoundingly, and all too briefly in you. It's beautiful, isn't it? It's absolutely beautiful. He talks about when you strip it all back, there is this thing in us, this desperate desire, life wants to be. And he asked the question, why? Why do these bags of genes and bones and blood and flesh, why do we long for each other? Why is there something in us that is more than the sum of our parts that hopes and dreams and plans and longs? Why does a nation stop for 10 days when one person dies? Why does a crowd gasp in horror when a flag is lowered? And why do people wipe tears from their eyes when a rainbow appears over a palace? We might be flesh and bone and blood and genes, but there's something more. You've only got to talk to somebody who's recently had a child or knows somebody who's recently had a child, and you can see it in the eyes. How many times has somebody said, their hands are so tiny? Don't know what they were expecting, like a baby with human hair, like huge hair, I don't know. But it causes us just to take a breath, doesn't it? The wonder of life that can't be captured in possible sequences of hereditary combinations. There's something more to us, isn't there? He goes on at the end of his book to say this. The upshot of all this, this will save you reading it if you don't want to be bothered. The upshot of all this is that we live in a universe whose age we can't quite compute, surrounded by stars whose distances we don't altogether know, filled with matter we can't identify, operating in conformance with physical laws whose properties we don't truly understand. So at the end of the short history of nearly everything, he says, yes, we don't know. You strip it all apart. You look at all the individual parts, and somehow that thing that we know is real, that is life, is not there on the table. There's something more to us. Is there more to life than this? 
Well, let's go to a, a, a sort of another person then. I mean, Stephen Hawkins, he wasn't known as being slow, was he? And uh, he wrote a book called A Brief History uh, of Time. And again, he was looking to try and put all these different ideas and theories and science in one place and produce a story, an unfolding story, a brief history of time. It is briefer. It's about 250 pages. It'll take about four hours. So if you've got to read one of them, uh, that's, that's the one to read. And he talks about this whole question of, but when we've answered all the questions of what and how, the deepest questions, the ones that we think about late at night, that rattle around in the brain, the ones that come up at painful junctions in our lives, the question of why won't be answered under a microscope or through a telescope. Today, we still yearn to know why we are here and where we came from. Humanity's deepest desire for knowledge is justification enough for our continuing quest. And our goal is nothing less than a complete description of the universe we live in. That's what he's after. This grand unifying theory where we can put it all together. And, and maybe then when we understand all the what's and the how's and the when's, we might get to this question of why there is something rather than nothing. And why it matters that we're here. Where in this big world, this big, scary, unforgiving, impersonal universe do we find meaning? Where does it come from? If you want to jump to the end of the book, towards the end, he writes this, will we ever know why? And he says, only time, whatever that may be, will tell. The book's called A Brief History of Time. He doesn't even know what time is, but we don't. This mystery. I mean, we do know what it is because we're caught in the flow of it, but we don't know what it is. There's so many unknowns. So who's right? Is Bill Bryson right that we're just here to be and to make sure that there's another generation of us who can be in our place? Or is Stephen Hawkins right that we just need to know and once we know, once we can define and describe everything, we'll, we'll capture it. Where do we find life? I want to turn to another great uh, philosopher, a guy called Gandalf. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen The Lord of the Rings, but it's a tremendous documentary on a brief history of time. But there's a moment in that film when a young lad called Frodo, who's literally got the weight of the world on his shoulders, says to this old wise wizard, I wish none of this had happened. I wish none of this had happened to me. And the wizard says, so do all who live to see such times, but that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. That's all. <laughs> well, what do we do then with this precious gift called time that we somehow understand has been given to us? This gift called life. Because there are moments, aren't there, when we grasp it. There are moments when we're with loved ones and we know this is why we're here. This is what life is all about. There are times of tragedy and difficulty and toughness when we will run to those that we love because they will give us that embrace that lets us know that everything is okay in the world even if it's not. Those moments that are real life when you are fully, truly alive. 
It's interesting, it can happen to us in all kinds of places. The ancient Greek playwrights and philosophers thought that there are only two great tragedies of life. One is to want something and never get it. And the other is to want something and get it and then realize it's not what you wanted it to be in the first place. And whether it is in moments of brilliance or moments of brokenness, we all come to this question, is this it? What is the point of my little corner of this place we call the universe? Why am I here? We search for it, we long for it, and when we go great periods of life without that sense of meaning and purpose, it can be difficult and painful. Over the next couple of Sundays here at Bethel, we're going to be basing our, our time kind of camping out in this chapter from John's Gospel, John chapter 10, and there's a phrase that comes right in the middle of it. If you wanted to try and summarize or, or, or to set up what Jesus' purpose was, if somebody asks you, uh, when you leave church today, what did Jesus come to do? You're going to know the answer. You're going to have a head start on everybody else. Jesus puts it this way. There is a thief who has come to steal, to kill, and to destroy. There is a presence in this world, the enemy of your soul, who will look to drag you away from purpose and love and meaning and hope. He will want to kill, steal, and destroy from you. But, he says, I have come that you might have life, life in all of its fullness. I won't go into great detail on the Greek here this morning, but basically what he's saying is life with a capital L, life as it was designed to be lived, life with God, life in the reality of the presence of God, and in all of its fullness, in all of its abundance, in all of its color, in all of its flavor, life life, life. Jesus says, that's why I've come. I've not come that you might have church in all of its dullness. I've come that you might have life in all of its fullness. And we're going to be thinking about what that life is and where we can find it. And Jesus warns us that there are other voices, we'll think about those in a moment, that we can follow, that can lead us and, and shape our lives. But he points out immediately that there is a thief the Bible calls him the accuser, Satan, the devil. And guys, I've seen it so many times, the way that the devil loves to steal, to take, and to destroy. People whose marriages have been stolen from by another voice, by another choice. People who began dabbling with horoscopes, maybe, that led on to tarot cards and, and Ouija boards, and whose life was car-crashed by following another voice. Sometimes it's in even less subtle ways. The little voice that says, don't respond, don't have hope, don't love, don't give. It steals from us, steals life away. Jesus warns us, there is a thief. But I've come, he says, that you may have life in all of its fullness. It's really interesting that just uh, before this and just after it, Jesus uses a, a really common image for the first century world, uh, that of a shepherd. And now this was really common in, in this part of the world to see shepherds walking around and sheep literally following 
uh, here in our sort of culture and context, if you ever see a shepherd, you're not likely too much now these days, sadly, uh, but the shepherd is often behind, and the sheepdogs do all the work, don't they, kind of herding and, and guiding. But in ancient Israel, the shepherd always went in front and trained the sheep to know his own voice. And they wouldn't move for anyone else's voice. They'd only move. It's a great thing to watch. They'd only move for a shepherd's voice. It's really interesting that sometimes when Jesus explains who he is, it's after he's just done something. I don't know if you've noticed this. So after Jesus feeds the 5,000 with you know, little kids packed lunch, he then turns around and says, I am the bread of life. After he's raised Lazarus from the dead, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. And so Jesus is, is, is demonstrating who he is and then explaining. So where do these words come from? Uh, why does Jesus say, I'm, I'm the good shepherd? Well, he's just come from a place uh, locally, which is known as the Pool of Siloam. Uh, in ancient Israel, there is a tunnel that runs from the top end, where there's this natural spring right the way down through the city, built by, by Hezekiah cent- centuries and generations before. It was a brilliant strategy so that if an army came in and besieged the city, they'd have this source of water. And many times historians have said, if you look at the history of Israel, the fact that when an army was attacking them, they had their own source of water made all the difference. I mean, they could outlast periods of time and attack, and armies had to leave because they didn't have water, but Jerusalem had it within. And so these waters became known as the living waters. These waters were like a, a, a breath of life, like a vein of hope that flowed into the city. Now, there's one time when Jesus is walking through the city, uh, and there's a man who's been born blind, and he cries out to Jesus for mercy and for help, and Jesus goes and sits with him for a while and talks with him, and then he sends him to Siloam and says, go and, and wash there. And immediately, as soon as he washes, he's able to see And there's this little sort of shockwave that ripples through the kind of religious world of the day because it shouldn't have happened on a Sabbath day. There's all kinds of things going on, and they demand to know who it was. And he goes, listen, all I know is I was blind, but now I see. This pool at Siloam was primarily, if I can say that word, primarily used for two purposes. For one part of the year, it was used for a religious purpose, which I'll explain in just a moment. But when it wasn't being used for that, they allowed shepherds, nearby shepherds, to use this pool to lead flocks to. Because they knew this was a fresh water source. They could wash their sheep from parasites and, and diseases in this very water, and then it would, it would flow away. And so Jesus is saying of this man who's just found hope and healing and freedom... See, I am, I am the good shepherd. I know of sources of life and of hope and of healing for those who will trust me, those who will do what I ask, those who will follow me. He gets really, really pointed here when he says, I am the good shepherd. Now, in our nice, neat English and British translations, that's how it reads. In the original Greek, it reads like this. I am the shepherd, the good one a bit more pointed, especially when the Pharisees of the day thought of themselves as shepherds. Jesus points out here, now I'm, I'm a shepherd, but not one that runs away at the sign of danger. I'm not a shepherd who cares more about his own life or his own reputation than my sheep. I have come to lay down my life for the sheep. 
Another uh, reason this pool was so special uh, in Israel was there was a feast once a year called the uh, Feast of Tabernacles. Uh, and there's this symbolic moment in this feast where uh, the high priest would go down to the pool of Siloam with a big water jug and would fill it with water and then take it back up to the temple. And then would stand by the altar and would pour out this water all over the floor so the temple would get soaked with this water that was gushing uh, out of this jar. Uh, and they would talk about you know, the day when Israel was free to draw wells from their own wells, to draw water from their own wells. Uh, it was that hope that one day they would be able to have the land back, that joy would return to the people. And this happens every day in the Feast of Tabernacles for seven days. At one point in Jesus' life, he goes up to the temple on the Feast of Tabernacles, and we're told that on the eighth day, on the greatest day of the feast, the day after this, they've had this week of this ceremony, Jesus stands there and says, if anyone's thirsty, let them come to me and drink. And then out of their innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is saying, I am the source of true life. You know, religion, this ritual that you've gone through, now that it's run out, now that it's gone, if you're thirsty, come. I'm the source that can satisfy and sustain you. I want to provide for your life a living, clean, fresh, pure, life-giving flow. If you're thirsty, come. And that's who Jesus is. Come, says Jesus. I've got what you need. Come, I'm the good shepherd. I know my sheep, and my sheep know me. He goes on to say more than that. He describes this relationship that we're invited into. Just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. I wonder if somebody was to say to you, as a, as a Christian, what is your sort of vision of life? If you had to describe your relationship with God now that you've come to faith in Jesus, what, what would you describe it as? Well, here's Jesus' vision of what's possible. To know Jesus as well as Jesus knows the Father. Sometimes we try to separate these words off and forget where they come. But to know life is to know Jesus. And to know Jesus is to know life. I remember when I was uh, training for ministry, I spent some time uh, with a church up in London, uh, just uh, off the side of the main streets of London. A lovely, lovely fellowship. And I remember being sat with one woman who had a choice to make about her future. It was a big choice, and uh, there were some obvious things I thought could be done. And I remember sitting there one day when she said to me, no, I couldn't possibly do that. It's not what my father would want. And so I said, oh, gosh, right, okay. Uh, where would I was trying to work out why it would affect her father. So I said, where, where does he live? And she said, no, he, he's, he's been dead for a number of years. And yet the voice of her father was still controlling, was still leading, was still prohibiting what would have been, I thought, and to others, a very natural and, and life-giving choice. And the reality is we, we have these voices, don't we, that we follow these voices that we listen to, sometimes it's a case of, I've got to have that. I've got to wear this. 
I've got to be part of, uh, of that. And these voices kind of shepherd our life. They lead us certain places. The truth is, if you're not being shepherded by Jesus, you're being shepherded by something. There are voices that call to us. Another real sort of formative time for me up in London uh, was when a friend of ours who was training for ministry was actually in a, a year above me. Uh, we knew from his past that he had real issues with substance abuse, with, with drug abuse. We learned that in his struggle, in his depression, he'd begun taking drugs again. And so often we'd talk with him, pray with him, share with him. And sadly, it became too much, and Dave took his own life. I remember his wife coming to meet us at the college and saying that that voice in him never fully went away. The thief comes to steal, to kill, and to destroy. But there is a voice that calls us towards life. The simple question is, who are you listening to? Who's leading you? Jesus will lead you towards life, towards hope, towards freedom. And he stands here and offers that to each and every one of us. My sheep know me, he says, just as the Father knows me and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. Some of you may be wondering, well, how, how do I know that this Jesus is worth following? How do I know that this Jesus has, has the best in mind for me? How do I know that it's worth giving up the rest of my life? Jesus says, I, I lay down my life for the sheep. We'll think about this again in a few uh, weeks' time, but the way that uh, shepherds used to build homes for their sheep was a, a, a short wall of, of stones, and they'd leave a gap for the sheep to come in and out when they were leading them to new pastures. And at night time, the time when the sheep were most vulnerable to being stolen or attacked by wolves or bears, uh, the shepherd would come and would lay in the gap, would literally become the gate. You know, if you're going to get to my sheep, you have to come through me. Jesus says, I'm the shepherd, the good one. And when we face that darkest threat, the threat that will lead us away from God, not just for now, but for forever, Jesus says, I lay down my life for my sheep. That's how he feels about you. That's how he feels about me. One final thought. This word, life, John's gospel is, is fairly unique in that there are these massive themes that run through it. One of the big themes is this word life. It keeps coming up again and again and again. John's trying to tell us something about life and about what Jesus has done that affects our lives. At the beginning of his gospel, you may recognize these words from, from Carol's services. John doesn't take us just to a stable or to a star. He, he takes us back before the dawn of time. John is writing a brief history of time, and Jesus is at the beginning and at the end. He says, in the beginning was the Word, a Word that in its original day just meant the reason for being. The Word. The Word was both with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Nothing was, that has been made was made without Him. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Why are we here? 
Why is there something rather than nothing? Because the Word who was with God and who was God in the beginning was brimming with life. That light that we see in each other's eyes, that hope that we hold out, that meaning that we search for, that reason for being in Him, John says, was life. And that light, that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness cannot put it out. That's Jesus. So when Jesus comes, He who was before all things, the creator of life itself, and says to us, I have life for you, real life, full life. And in order for you to know it, I will lay down my own life. What compares with that? You can face all kinds of things in life if you know this God, the God who was before all things and the God who is with us now and who has demonstrated just how much He loves you. Life in all of its fullness. Because you see those things that taint our lives and distract us and, and detract from even our best moments, the, the guilt that we feel, the shame that we carry, the, the baggage that we carry. Jesus laid down his life so that there would be a place where all of that could be laid down, where the thief has no power to steal, kill, and destroy. That's why Jesus came. That's why he can offer us life in all of its fullness. Tomorrow we're going to gather, aren't we, as a, as a nation, and we're going to remember one life, a very, very significant and, and important life. I don't know if you've got plans to, to see it, but it's, it's a big day for us as a nation. It's for some people being so important that they've queued, haven't they? Some people for days to go and see her coffin as it lies in, in state. Some people have queued to be in the queue that goes there. And in the height of Britishness, the BBC has live-streamed the queue for the queue to go and see the Queen. And there have been some people that have joined that queue. Other people have cheated and used the press entrance and there have been all kinds of questions about whether if the King of Football, the man with the golden boot, had the queue, whether the King and Queen of Daytime Telly shouldn't have queued as well. But there we go, I'm not going to get into that. But we have this sort of idea of status, don't we? They shouldn't have to queue. They shouldn't stand around with the likes of us. Oh, but they should. They should definitely be in the queue. We have this idea that life can be divided up into the importance and the not importance. And you can draw those lines in all kinds of places. Sadly, we live in a world, don't we, of the haves and the haves not. People who are left out, people who aren't invited. There's been a hymn that has been written for, uh, for the Queen. It's based on the tune, uh, To Hear His Love. And there's part in that where it goes, uh, When our days are at their dimming and our work on earth is done, may we hear, as does our sovereign, faithful servant, welcome home. May we rise with Christ to witness a new heaven and earth displayed. Ours a crown that will not tarnish. Here's a crown that will not fade. As has been reported many times in recent days, the Queen was a very committed Christian. 
she might have shepherded a nation, but her shepherd was Jesus. I think whenever she could, she spoke about that, didn't she? In all the ways that she could. Uh, and I was reading just this last week about a service that she was at uh, where the theme was the second coming. And they were singing that song, When We Cast Our Crowns Before Thee, Lost in Wonder, Love and Praise. And she raced up to the vicar afterwards and said, I cannot wait to cast my crown before him. Whether you feel that you're at the start of the queue or the end of the line, that's not life. Knowing this Jesus, who waits to welcome you into his grace, life in all of its fullness. And that's who Jesus is. Let's pause to pray together today. And what I'd love us to do is just to take a moment to think about how well we know this shepherd. Jesus says his sheep will know him. Some of us, maybe we're seeking that knowledge today. We want to know more. Maybe for others of us, there's been misunderstandings. Maybe our search for meaning and love and hope has led us in other directions. And there has been that which has stolen and destroyed and killed within us. Maybe there are others of us today who just recognize there were voices that lead us, but not towards life, not towards fullness, not towards hope. And so our simple prayer today is, Lord Jesus, shepherd me. Lead me. Feed me. Know me. Guide me. Guard me. And if you need to know today that shepherd who has laid down his life so that when guilt and shame and sin come knocking, he stands in the way and says, not them, they're mine. Then because his life could not be stopped, because death couldn't handle him and the grave couldn't hold him, he stands among us today and says, I've come that you might have life. And each of us have to decide, will we follow? Will we, lead? Will we let him lead? Will we welcome his life and his love?